Good afternoon. Uh, my name is David Spergel. I'm uh, chair of the astrophysics department and most importantly for this lecture, chair of the Committee on Public Lectures. So let me begin by asking you all to turn off your cell phones. And uh, while you're doing that, also request that you not use uh, any flash photography here. And uh, then turn to the topic of first public lectures, then the lecture itself. This is uh, one of the real highlights of the, our program this year. Um, we have several other exciting lectures coming up that I'd like to advertise. Um, on October 18th, Susan Faludi will be speaking on 9-11 at the 10-year mark, a decade of fear and fantasy. On November 10th, Jonathan Safran Foyer, the author, will be speaking on writing life. On November 29th, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the director of the Hayden Planetarium, will be speaking on the delusions of space enthusiasts. And we'll end the year on December 8th with a talk by Steve Martin, the actor. The, um, this lecture is co-sponsored as an Edge Lecture and a Harlan Lecture. The Walter Edge Lecture Series was founded in 1957 in memory of Walter Edge, class of 1946, who served twice as governor of New Jersey and also as a US senator and ambassador to France. The lectureship is supported by a bequest from his estate, assigned to the university by his family as a means of bringing Princeton eminent to, to Princeton, eminent statesmen from abroad, as well as leaders in public life. Previous Walter Edge lectures included George Kennan, John Kenneth Galbraith, Kenneth Arrow, Edward Heath, Valerie Giscard de Tang, Elie Wiesel, Robert Rubin, Nicholas Stern, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ernesto Zidello, Romano Prati, and Sheila Baer. Uh, now it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Kim Shepley, Director of the uh, Program in Law and Public Affairs and the Lawrence Rockefeller Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School, and the University Center for Human Values who's going to introduce today's distinguished lecturer, Kim. Welcome to a packed Richardson Auditorium, and also to Makash 50, which has a remote video feed so that those gathered here can hear us across campus. It is indeed impressive to see how many people in our community have gathered to welcome to Princeton a most distinguished guest, Associate Justice John Paul Stevens, recently retired from the U.S. Supreme Court. The John Marshall Harlan Class of 1920 lecture is one of the high points of our year. The Harlan Lecture was established to honor the second Justice Harlan, who served on the U.S. Supreme Court from 1955 to 1971. In honoring the second Justice Harlan with this lecture in his name, Princeton calls attention not only to this particular one of 10 Princeton alumni who have served as justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, and I might add three of them are serving at the moment, but it also calls attention to the way that the campus has been a contributor to the life of the law. Even though Princeton only had a law school for a few years in the mid-19th century, 
Princeton has long been a center for robust debate about the law, a tradition that the program in law and public affairs is proud to carry on. The Harlan Lecture marks this Princeton tradition. While he was an undergraduate at Princeton, the future Justice Harlan was the editor of the campus newspaper and president of his class. On the court, he was often considered to be the intellectual leader of the conservative wing of his day. He frequently dissented from the liberal activist decisions of the Warren Court, but in many cases, Justice Harlan also defended individual liberties. To take one example, in Griswold versus Connecticut, the famous 1965 case challenging a statute limiting the distribution of birth control to married couples, the majority opinion written by Justice Douglas had opted to ground the case on a right to privacy, relying on penumbras cast by the Bill of Rights. Justice Harlan's concurrence, and it was after all a concurrence, quote, simply and correctly reasoned that the statute deprived married couples of liberty as that concept has been used in the 14th Amendment without due process of law, unquote. The quotation is from the brand new book by Justice Stevens called Five Chiefs, a Supreme Court Memoir. And by the way, the book is available in the lobby where a labyrinth bookstore has set up a table. As one can see from his evaluation of the Harlan concurrence in Griswold, Justice Stevens shares with Justice Harlan a preference for straightforward argument. I might also add that one learns from Justice Stevens's book that in a single instance arguing before the US Supreme Court as an advocate for the Bowman Dairy of Chicago in a 1962 antitrust case, which was called US v. Borden, Justice Harlan dissented from the judgment to send the case back to the trial court for further fact-finding, and therefore agreed with then-advocate Stevens. So in their one face-to-face -face encounter at the Supreme Court, Justice Harlan gave a young advocate a boost. We therefore hope he doesn't mind giving the lecture in his name today. And so we are delighted to welcome Justice Stevens. He was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1975 by President Gerald Ford and confirmed by a unanimous vote of the Senate. He retired last year after 34 terms on the bench. Just two years shy of the all-time record for time spent as a justice on the court, a record held by the man he replaced, Justice William O. Douglas, Justice Stevens has written a great many opinions in virtually every area of federal statutory and constitutional law, distinguishing himself in fields ranging from antitrust to administrative law to criminal procedure and from abortion to affirmative action to the war on terror. Over his long years on the court, he has written more than 1,400 opinions. Roughly half of those are dissent. <laughs> Summarizing Justice Stevenson's substantial contributions to constitutional law is impossible in a short introduction, but suffice it to say he became, over a long evolution, a strong defender of individual liberty, of reasonable restraints on governmental power, and of the living constitution. At the time of his retirement, Many said it marked the end of an era because he was the only justice on the bench who had served in the military. The young John Paul Stevens had joined the Navy the day before the Pearl Harbor attack, and he worked through the war at Pearl Harbor as a cryptographer, breaking Japanese codes and earning a bronze star for his service. At, at the time he left the bench, he was also the only justice about whom it could be said that one could not largely predict the votes that he would give on the basis of the political party of the president who appointed him. He had been appointed by a Republican president, but by the time he retired, he voted most often with the liberal wing of the court. 
Justice Stevens has often said that he has been perfectly consistent while the court changed around him, but many observers believe that both he and the court moved. And at the time he left, he was the only remaining justice who was still known by his bow ties. And for those of you who might notice, he's wearing a Princeton bow tie today. <laughs> Uh, but of course, Justice Stevens was not born onto the bench. He was born in 1920 in Chicago to parents who, among other things, owned the Stevens Hotel. It was built in 1927, at the time the largest hotel in the world. It is now the Chicago Hilton on South Michigan Avenue. Rumor has it that the Stevens Hotel lobby featured bronze statues for which Justice Stevens and his brothers served as the models. I will refrain from a pun about statutory interpretation. Um, but although the Great Depression hit his family hard, among other things pushing the hotel into receivership, John Paul Stevens had the opportunity in his youth to meet many of the stars of his time. Who else among the justices has ever been given both a gentle scolding by Amelia Earhart for being out past his bedtime and a dove, an actual bird, by Charles Lindbergh? And was it this attention from two famous aid aviators that was this the reason why Justice Stevens then went on to get a pilot's license? Justice Stevens is much beloved by politicians, scholars, his former clerks and fellow justices, and just about everyone else who has ever known him. In 2005, Gerald Ford wrote a letter to the Fordham Law Review, which was organizing a major symposium on the jurisprudence of Justice Stevens. Former President Ford said, for I am prepared to allow history's judgment of my term in office to rest, if necessary, exclusively on my nomination 30 years ago of Justice John Paul Stevens to the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of his former colleagues, former law clerks, Abner Green, remarked during that symposium, if you don't like Justice Stevens, you just don't like people. And we're honored to welcome Justice Stevens to Princeton. Before I hand over the floor, I want to tell you who I'm handing over the floor to, and that is our provost, Christopher L. Eisgruber. He was no stranger to the Supreme Court, or for that matter, he's no stranger to Justice Stevens, because in the 1989-1990 term on the court, provost Eisgruber clerked for Justice Stevens. So what you are about to see this afternoon is the legal world's equivalent of a conversation between father and son. <laughs> After graduating from Princeton with a degree in physics, serving as a Rhodes Scholar, clerking for both Judge Leon Higginbotham and then for Justice Stevens, Provost Eisgruber became a prolific law professor at NYU, best known for his scholarship on the enigmatic religion clauses of the First Amendment. He moved to Princeton in, from NYU Law School in 2001 as director of the program in Law and Public Affairs. He became provost of the institution in 2004. And all those, of him, uh, all those of us who work with him here at Princeton know him for his exemplification of the virtues of personal integrity and civility, virtues that Justice Stevens has both modeled and championed. Professor Eisgruber is distinguished author of three books, Constitutional Self-Government, Religious Freedom and the Constitution with Larry Sagar, and most recently, The Next Justice, Repairing the Supreme Court Appointments Process. He also manages to write a lot in law reviews, including his most recent article in the Georgetown Law Journal in June 2011 called How the Maverick Became a Lion, Affirmative Action in the Jur Jurisprudence of Justice John Paul Stevens. And so now I turn the floor over to Provost Eisgruber to begin the conversation with Justice Stevens about the court and the Constitution.
Thank you, Kim. So, Justice, let me just begin by saying how personally delighted I am uh, to be able to welcome you here to Princeton and how uh, grateful all of us here are that uh, you've been willing to visit us. Well, let me just say I'm delighted to be back with you, Chris, because we've worked together for a year and have been friends ever since, and I've always learned a lot from him. Maybe I'll learn something today. Well, it's extremely kind and not fully persuasive, I think, but to, to, I've learned so much from you, Justice. And uh, let, let me begin. I, I've learned even more by uh, uh, reading your book over the last uh, week, Five Chiefs, uh, and I wanted to start by uh, asking you about the title and the topic. Uh, you organized the book around uh, five chief justices with whom you've uh, worked. Um, what was your reason for focusing on the chiefs rather than on, say, your, your great opinions? Well, it's not a very profound answer, but the truth is that uh, when I retired, I, I gave a number of visits to smaller groups where I answered questions from the, from the group about my work. And almost every time I went to one of these events, someone mentioned the fact that I'd served with three chiefs and asked me to compare them. And as I thought about that, when I began thinking about doing some writing, I thought to myself, well, actually, I knew five chiefs because I'd been a law clerk with uh, uh, Chief Justice Vinson, and I had some contact as a practicing lawyer with uh, uh, Chief Justice Warren, and so I thought uh, it might an answer to that question to talk a little bit about the five chiefs. And I thought also the fact that uh, uh, I think the public generally, s s there are many people in the public who assume there's a dramatic difference in the uh, office of the chief as opposed to the, uh, the jobs of the other associate justices, which is, is true in some ways, but, uh, but not in all. And I thought it might be useful to point out that the primary duties of the chief justice are really the same as other members of the court. He has one vote and the others all have one vote too. So that, that, that although he's the presiding officer, he's really one among nine equals. And also it occurred to me that there are aspects of the job of the Chief Justice that are not as well known to the public as I thought uh, might be of interest. Uh, for example, the fact that he's the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Smithsonian Institute, which doesn't seem to fit into the normal perception of the Chief Justice. Uh, plus the fact that he does have certain unique appointment responsibilities that I thought might be worth uh, describing generally. So that I thought there might be an interest in the office as well as my recollections of, of the particular uh, uh, chiefs that I had some contact with. One of the things you manage to do as you talk about these five chiefs is to weave through stories about uh, various things that uh, happened in your own career, even though they may not have involved the chiefs. One of them that I thought was uh, particularly, particularly interesting was your story about having represented uh, Arthur Lafrana mm -hmm. in 1951. And I wonder if you could say a bit to the audience about that representation. Well, I might. Uh, it's, it's, it's a long story, as all these stories are, but I'll, I'll try to be uh, brief. Uh, there's a man whose picture is at the, in the opening pages of the book, Nat Nathanson, who was my con law professor and from whom I learned a great deal, happened to have argued a case before the Vincent Court representing Arthur Lafrana and some other 
prisoners in uh, Joliet, the state prison in Joliet, who were claiming that they had had confessions extorted from them by the police by uh, brutal methods. And as a result of that argument, Annette representing them was able to convince the court in an opinion that uh, Chief Justice Vincent wrote that their claims, if factually correct, did entitle them to uh, uh, further proceedings. And two of the um, men that he, on the group he represented were uh, two uh, people who later became clients of mine because the, uh, Nat didn't uh, do, do much trial work and he asked, uh, asked me if I would fill in uh, at the trial stage and the judge did appoint me counsel. And uh, I, I remember my visits to Joliet for the Arthur Lafrana and the other one was a, a man named Thompson, if I remember correctly, who uh, when I first visited him, he, was, he could have been a, a tackle on the Chicago Bears. I remember him very well. And I remember when I went in to see him, he told me how glad he was to see a lawyer. And I started to ask him about the facts of his case. I think the, he'd He'd signed a confession, and at the end of it, he said, I've signed this because I insist upon signing it. And I always thought that sounded like somebody might have been dictating what would go on the confession. But in any event, I, I was looking forward to finding out very, uh, the true facts of his case. And when he told me he really was very uh, happy to see a lawyer, he said, and I started asking him about this. He said, well, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not particularly interested in those facts. I want to tell you about my invention. I need, a, I need a patent lawyer to help me get this invention patented. And I said, what is, what is the invention? He says, it's an it, invention on how to build a tunnel. And, <laughs> and, and he convinced me that that would have a very wide market in the, among his immediate associates. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't qualified to do patent work, and somehow or other, that, that, that didn't go forward. But the second person I, I interviewed was a man named Arthur Lafrana that you, you mentioned, Chris. And uh, he had alleged in his pleadings that the police had handcuffed him behind, hands behind his back and then strung him, strung him up over a door and made him, while he was hanging there, they beat him rather viciously with both their fists and with rubber hoses and one thing or another until he agreed to confess to a, a, a killing a, a theater cashier in Chicago. And so when I first met him, I remember asking him where he felt the particular pain, and I thought that it would be on his wrists where the, where the uh, uh, handcuffs were put in. I can still remember my surprise when he said, oh, no, it's my shoulders. It's the pain in my shoulders was was absolutely intolerable. And I thought to myself, my golly, this fellow is telling the truth. And I, I, I became convinced that he, he had a, a true story to, t to tell, and, then, and that gave me an added incentive in investigating the case. And uh, he was telling the truth, no doubt about it. We, proved, we got medical records that showed the marks on his wrists. We found a few pictures of him. They had been taken when he was in, in the police station. And perhaps the most persuasive evidence in the case was the testimony of the uh, police captain who explained that those uh, the uh, bruises and the like had uh, resulted from a fall down the stairs in the police station when he was uh, admitted to go to the men's room. And the improbability of the, of the police officer's testimony 
was very convincing to me that it was the truth. And in the, in the end, uh, he was released. When you look back now over your career, are there role models or uh, experiences like the Lafrana representation that you think uh, substantially uh, um, influenced your view of the Constitution and the role of a judge? Well, uh, role models or particular cases, there, there are so many, Chris, it's a little hard to, to identify, particularly when I have to confess that the, that experience did convince me that there were cases in which uh, confessions had been uh, extorted by the police because I, I was totally convinced of the truth of that. And there were other cases that, that in that particular area that I think my own experience did have an impact on my, uh, my thinking in some of those cases. One of the things that I think might surprise the um, uh, ordinary reader of uh, Five Chiefs is uh, the amount of attention you give to issues about sovereign immunity. I think the first case you discuss in the book is uh, Chisholm versus Georgia, which is a sovereign immunity case. The last two lines of the book quote both Plato and Lincoln about sovereign immunity. And I would say perhaps the most passionate criticism in the book is directed at uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinions about sovereign immunity. That, that's correct. Uh, others who've read the book have not uh, identified that aspect of as, as clearly as you have. Uh, but I have uh, felt very deeply that the uh, court's sovereign immunity jurisprudence is incorrect and should be re-examined. After all, the doctrine of sovereign immunity was a common law doctrine. And at the time of the founding, the, the, the new states and the federal government were free to accept or to reject common law rules. Some, some common law rules were accepted, some were changed, some were not accepted at all. And there was a debate among the original founders over whether the, com the doctrine of sovereign immunity really fit in a, in a democracy. Uh, John Jay and, and Justice uh, uh, Wilson felt that, that that's a doctrine that need not uh, survive here. And in fact, the prevailing view after the 11th Amendment was adopted was that the doctrine should be, should be a part of the law of many of the states and the national government. But the fact that a common law became part of the law is a, a hundred thousand miles away from saying it was a constitutional rule. And I think that the court really has engaged in a series of missteps in creating, in transforming a common law rule into a misreading of the 11th Amendment. And I think some of the most unfortunate the cases were written by uh, Bill Rehnquist, my, my very good friend in many other areas, but I thought it might be important to bring that out uh, in the book, and that's one of the central ideas I did want to uh, explore. Just for the benefit of uh, students who may not have encountered the concept before, sovereign immunity is the idea that the government should be insulated from liability in various kinds of suits or otherwise not subject to the uh, law or its judicial enforcement. I, I wonder, given how important that argument is to you, Justice Stevens, whether you might say a little bit more about why that theme is so important. I mean, there are many other places where you criticize the court, often very gently, but this one's very insistent. Well, uh, I don't mean to suggest that some of the other decisions that I think were incorrect are not important, too. <laughs> <laughs> examples of the cases of construing the Second Amendment and construing the campaign finance 
I feel very deeply about those cases too, but I've written at such length about those that I, I tried not to repeat in the book things that can, are just set forth in, in my uh, various dissenting opinions. But uh, I do think that this particular doctrine is a doctrine that, that promotes injustice rather than justice. Since you mentioned it, let me uh, take you to campaign uh, finance. I think you note in the book that the issue of campaign finance in some ways bookended your career on the uh, court when you first joined. The drafts of Buckley versus Vallejo were circulating around, and then as you left, one of the final dissents you read from the bench was in the Citizens United case about uh, the right of corporations or the claimed right of corporations to contribute to uh, political campaign. Uh, in the book, you even say about Buckley that your principal memory of your first weeks on the court is one of extreme distaste for debates about campaign uh, financing. And I should say to those who don't know this that one of the characteristics of the opinions in Buckley versus Vallejo were that they were very long, so there were huge <laughs> numbers of drafts circulating. How should the court respond to free speech objections to campaign finance regulations? Well, of course, you have to take each case and each issue uh, uh, on its own and look at it, uh, look at it carefully and individually. But uh, you, you do mention my distaste for the Buckley against Vallejo case, and as you describe it, Chris, I do remember that the case had been argued before I, I, I was sworn in, and a new justice does not participate in, in the voting in cases that been ar argued before. But he does get copies of the circulations that are uh, sent from one chamber to the, to the entire court. And uh, I kept getting copies of redrafts of all the different issues in Buckley against Vallejo, and, and it was, it's a per curiam opinion, which means it doesn't have a single author. It's, it's an opinion of the court. But the, the different parts of the opinion were written by different justices. And I can still remember these long opinions coming in from the other chambers and thinking, I, gee, I have to read this stuff because I have to know what's, what's going on. And it, as I think I may have said, it reminded me of jumping on a moving train and trying to keep track of what's, what's going on. But uh, one of, the, one of the, the basic problems, I think, is the uh, notion that uh, money is the same as speech in terms of constitutional protection. And the opinion drew a distinction between prohibitions of excessive contributions and of excess expenditures, and, and, and basically held that the limits on, on contributions were constitutional, but the limits on expenditures were, were not. And many people have thought that the distinction was not, not, did not have integrity. And particularly the notion that money is the equivalent of speech, which is sort of the underlying a proposition behind the uh, First Amendment protection of expenditures uh, seems to me to be incorrect and to prove, prove more than, than the First Amendment should require. And in reflecting on it uh, recently in, in, in another session of this kind, I was with uh, uh, Dennis McCutcheon in Chicago recently, it occurred to me that if the First Amendment does protect, uh, give it more or less absolute protection to all campaign expenditures, the expenditures that were 
extended for the purpose of financing the Watergate break-ins would probably have been entitled to First Amendment protection. <laughs> and I'm not sure anybody would be persuaded by that particular argument. I think even the current court would find a way to stop short of that particular conclusion. Are you sure? I, I've, <laughs> I've been wrong many times about the current court, so I, I probably shouldn't make any such predictions. Justice, some of uh, observers uh, writing after your retirement and at the time you retired said that they thought uh, two of the opinions that would become celebrated as uh, among the greatest in your legacy were the cases about uh, the rights of accused terrorists and their right of access to uh, courts, uh, Hamden versus Rumsfeld and uh, Rasul versus uh, Bush. They figure only briefly in five chiefs. I think they get a mention... And I was, so I was going to ask you whether you agreed with the assessment of those, whether this, you view them that way. And well, I do feel very strongly about those cases. I do think they're important, and I'm, I'm really quite proud of them, to be, be, uh, be honest about it. But again, I thought that the book was primarily, I had some, some give and take, frankly. Uh, I put in, it put in more personal recollections, and some people might think appropriate in a book about the five chiefs. And that was the continuing debate that I had with uh, my wife, Marianne. She thought I was straying away from the uh, five chiefs whenever I would I'd go off into some of my own personal recollections. But those were, I think, very important cases, and I, I felt very strongly. The one on uh, holding that uh, uh, the uh, uh, people being detained on Guantanamo have en ent entitled to the uh, writ of habeas corpus really dates way back to my work as a law clerk for Justice Rutledge, where we had a, a case involving uh, people being detained on Ellis Island as to whether they could bring a case against the Attorney General, and the court held they could not. And I think Justice Rutledge's dissent in that case, which was overruled some years later, was, was something that I had very much in mind when working on that case. Now, I know this is a question that uh, would have been out of bounds if you were still an active justice, and you may want to rule it out of bounds uh, now, but given the importance of those cases, do you think, as you look at the United States government policy after those uh, cases, that it's meeting its constitutional obligations to provide a forum to those who are accused? Well, I, I don't think the question's out of bounds, Chris, but I don't think I'm really qualified to answer it, because I haven't followed the details of the procedures that have been uh, put in place since then, and I think they do raise entirely different questions from the basic question of whether or not the, the writ is available to people being uh, detained at uh, Guantanamo. Do you view these cases as connected to the sovereign immunity issue? Is it uh, part and parcel of the same thing? I hadn't really thought of the connection, to tell you the truth. Uh, so I, I, I think they're independent. Okay. Let, let me ask you, I, I have to ask, I think, at least uh, one question about uh, Bush versus Gore. So let me ask one. Uh, at, at the end of your very um, trenchant dissent in that uh, case, you wrote that although we may never know with complete certainty the identity of the winner of this year's presidential election, the identity of the loser is perfectly clear. It is the nation's confidence in the judge as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. As you look back now over the 10 years that have followed, how do you think that Bush versus Gore has changed the court or the way that it is perceived? Well, I, I, I don't think I was thought of as, as changing the court. I thought at the time, uh, that, and I still do, that 
that particular decision was was quite wrong on, on finding that there was a, a justification for for interrupting the recount. Uh, I thought it uh, th threatened the public perception of the uh, independence of the court as an impartial uh, adjudicator and, and, and sort of the guardian of the rule of law. And I did point out in the book, I don't know if you noticed that, uh, Chris, that uh, on, the, on the other side of the coin is the Warren Berger's decision in the case involving the a tape requiring the uh, President Nixon to surrender the tapes that were ultimately laid the ground for his uh, uh, resignation from office. And although I don't think that case has been adequately recognized for this point, it was, a, I think, one of the most important cases in the history of the court upholding and dramatizing the importance of the independence of the, of the court. Because after all, not only all the members of the court, but four members of the court were appointed uh, by uh, uh, President Nixon. And I think that is a, a really a dramatic example of the importance of the role, role of the court. In that case, United States versus Nixon was unanimous. Yes. Uh, let me ask you one other thing about um, uh, campaign finance and uh, the reactions to Citizens uh, United. One of the things that I always hear now when I'm giving talks about the court is people always want to know what uh, my reaction is to the episode at the State of the Union address where uh, President Obama criticized the decision and uh, Justice Alito reacted to it. Uh, do you, what's, what's your take on that episode? Well, there are two or three things that I could say about that. First, I think the president had every right to, as every other citizen does, to criticize the court if he disagrees with the analysis and opinion. And after all, he's entitled to benefit of the First Amendment as much as any other citizen is. So, and I think also that his criticism, he basically was suggesting that the rationale of the court would protect contributions made by foreign corporations as well as domestic corporations. And I had suggested that that was implicit in the reasoning of the court, and I agreed with the president's analysis. But it's also true that Justice Kennedy went out of his way to say we're not deciding that. And, I, and the president failed to acknowledge that, but I nevertheless think his criticism was a correct uh, interpretation of the implications of the decision. Now, as I understand it, uh, the, uh, Justice Alito, in effect, said that that is not true or something in some ways reading his lips, which, of course, was also a correct thing to say because, in a way, the president was interpreting the, the thrust of, and reasoning of the opinion rather than anything said in the majority, although it had been said, I think, in my, my dissent. I think I made, made the same point. But um, in defense of the members of the court, I think I should point out that it is, it is a, a difficult uh, event in which to participate for this reason. Everybody else can react and stand up and cheer whenever uh, the president says something you agree with. I mean, as you know, the, 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 uh, there's a tremendous amount of automatic reaction. And the mem members of the court have felt that they should not do so, and the reason for that goes back many years. When President Johnson g gave a State of the Union message in which he announced the introduction of the Civil Rights Act, I think it was, the, uh, the members of the court all stood up and cheered. 
And the next day, one of the newspapers said, apparently, the Warren Court has upheld the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act. And so the members of the court talked it over and decided they should be very careful not to show any agreement or disagreement with policy statements made by, made by the president during the State of the Union message. And so what happens is that when everybody else rises in, in reaction to the president's remark, we had to sit there and just pretend that nothing was going on, even though you felt like it. <laughs> so that you're it. You are a, a unique part of the audience that may not participate in, in, and respond to the president. With one exception, when President Reagan made a comment on her, his announcing uh, Sandra O'Connor's appointment, and finally having a, a woman appointed the court, we did all stand up and cheer in that time. <laughs> Appropriately so. Uh, let me ask you about uh, the issue of affirmative action. Uh, early on in your judicial career, you wrote some uh, opinions that were uh, very critical of affirmative action uh, policies and voted to strike them down. Uh, in the latter half of your time on the Supreme Court, you were a very reliable vote to uphold those policies. What changed? Well, the, the big change, I think, uh, can be identified in my uh, opinion in uh, Wygant, the, the Michigan case involving the retention of a uh, high school teacher who had been, received a union contract. She had job protection, and she kept her job when they uh, downloaded the faculty and, and, and white uh, members of the faculty who had more seniority were, were let go. And in, in that opinion, I made the point that there's a vast difference between justifying affirmative action on the theory that it's, it's making, uh, uh, it's a remedy for past sins. And the earlier cases, I had thought the court had been quite wrong in assuming that affirmative action should be justified on that theory. That rather you should look at, rather at the future and the benefits that are available through affirmative action, through diversity. And in that particular case, I thought that the, there was a benefit to the student body and to the faculty as a whole by having an integrated uh, faculty, which, which I thought, thought was a perfectly valid justification for the affirmative action in that case. And of course, even, it was even clearer when we got to the Michigan Law School uh, case that if you look at the future rather than the past, you can come out with one answer. And the case that, the particular case I have in mind where I wrote went the other way is a case called Fullalove, where there was absolutely no study on the part of Congress of, of, of the consequences of the program that they put into place. And rather, they, it was, without going into great detail, there was a, a total absence of really thoughtful uh, consideration of the pros and cons of the issue there, and I did not think the program in that case was justified by the remedial theory that uh, that was involved, and I still feel that way. So uh, legislators and, and universities and others did a more conscientious job taking into account the relevant uh, constitutional considerations. Well, taking, weighing the benefits and disadvantages in the, in the, in the, in the future implementation mm -hmm. of the program. And it, rather than just looking at it as affirmative action as a means of compensating people for some uh, past wrongdoing, particularly because sometimes the people who get the benefit were not ones who had actually suffered uh, the wrongdoing. 
Let me ask you about uh, what advice you might have for a legislator in a, another area that you've uh, written about, if you were willing to uh, give it. One of the, uh, the issues about which you've been outspoken, both in your opinions on the court and uh, in a book review uh, afterwards, is the death penalty. If a state legislator were to come to you now for advice about whether it was possible to enact a fully constitutional death penalty statute in the United States, uh, what advice would you give? Well, I think that it's possible to enact a death penalty statute that would be held constitutional by a majority <laughs> of the Supreme Court. That's for sure. And, <laughs> and that's but, the kind of advice you have to give you know. uh, to the legislature. I would tell him, though, that I think it's a, a tremendous misuse of, of a, a finite amount of state resources to be using it uh, in uh, the administration of the death penalty because it's a very expensive and, and counterproductive process that in my judgment, having thought about it a good deal over the years, does more harm than good. And, and I, I would urge him just to, without trying to reach the constitutional issue, but to just trying to weigh the pros and cons of that kind of legislation to think that uh, I would urge him not to enact such a statute. Let me ask you a couple of questions that arc across uh, some of these topics and uh, areas of jurisprudence. I think one of the hallmarks of your uh, constitutional opinions during your time on the court was your willingness to include judgments about reasonableness when your colleagues, often on both sides of the uh, liberal conservative divide were more insistent on bright line rules. I think the free speech area uh, where uh, the other justices are very much focused on uh, particular categories of uh, speech is one example. The equal protection and due process clauses are another. What would you say to someone uh, like Justice Scalia who says, well, if it all comes down to reasonableness, it's just what one judge or another thinks? Well, <laughs> One can make that argument, but I do think that uh, uh, any judge has to make some decisions, and you use a variety of guideposts when you're when you are uh, approaching a case. It's not you don't need to have the same bright line rule that the tax code has to be administered by accountants that can do it everything work things out on a calculator. There are areas of judgment in which a number of factors will will play out in the uh, consideration of a case. The one that comes to mind, as you put it right now, uh, Chris, is the uh, Second Amendment case, and the Heller case holding that uh, the Second Amendment protects the right to uh, uh, possession of a gun for self-defense, uh, where there's perfectly very persuasive historical evidence that James Madison, when drafting that provision, had before him state constitutional provisions which were much more, much broader and he drafted a provision that gave a preamble that indicated the purpose was to protect the militia from uh, having the federal government deprive uh, militiamen of access to, the, to weapons. And one of the factors that I would always think take into account in, in cases like that is who is the best decision maker to, to resolve questions of this kind? Is it a, in this particular example, the bottom line is, is it federal judges or is it legislators? And it seems to me this is a quintessential example of a policy dispute which is best 
resolved by members of legislatures rather than by federal judges at the end of the line, particularly when you take the second case, which talked about applying the Second Amendment to the states, it prevents the really ironic result that the states have to defer to federal judges rather than the states who were identified as the beneficiary of the rule in the, in the Second Amendment. So I don't think you should have just one criterion to resolve some of these issues. And it's true that the, the area the judge has to use a judgment in weighing the different factors that, uh, that uh, affect a decision, but that's been true in so much of our law over the years, which developed through common law decisions and judges weighing the pros and cons of particular rules. So I, I feel very strongly that, that the notion that you can have a bright line rule or an approach to bright line rules that will answer all questions is, is really misguided. You mentioned the common law uh, method, which builds case by case and precedent by precedent. And that was the other general question I wanted to ask you is about precedent, uh, which we hear a lot about now in all confirmation hearings. And in Five Chiefs, you're sometimes critical of the court for abandoning precedents. On the other hand, I think there are areas, sovereign immunity being one, where, where you would willingly overthrow some of those uh, precedents. Could you say a little about the balance? Well, it's the same thing. I, I think that uh, uh, you, the, the, an area of judgment has to be uh, play a role in the decision whether to follow or, or abandon an earlier case. And, and one of the, an example that, that comes to mind is a case the court decided on the last day of Thurgood Marshall's tenure where the, the issue was whether or not victim impact uh, evidence is admissible in the penalty phase of a capital case. And about 10 years earlier, Lewis Powell had written one opinion and Bill Brennan had written another, holding that this kind of evidence is, is definitely inadmissible because it makes the juror's reaction to the case depend more on emotion rather than the reasoning and the, the uh, pros and cons of the, of the penalty. And the, the court overruled those, those two cases uh, in the pain against Tennessee. And Justice Marshall wrote a very uh, strong opinion arguing the importance of stare decisis. And I have to say I wrote separately in the case because I thought that the, the decision was independently wrong even without the stare decisis. <laughs> and, and I thought that uh, although there's much to be said for Justice Marshall's opinion, I didn't wouldn't have applied as rigid a rule of stare decisis as he did. But again, the question of stare decisis is a question you have to answer sort of issue by issue and case by case in terms of uh, how, how bad you think the, the, the rule is that's being re-examined and, the, and the, the justification for taking a second look at it. Let me uh, ask you a question that plays off something that Kim Shepley mentioned in her uh, introduction. Uh, the, the Supreme Court today it has become much more diverse in some ways uh, than it was in the past and less diverse in, in other ways. So uh, I think there are no justices now who have served in the military who are on the uh, court and none who have served in elected political office. We're very proud that the last three justices all come from uh, Princeton, but they increasingly have Eastern pedigrees in uh, general, with I think everybody having attended Justice Ginsburg eventually got her degree at Columbia, but having attended uh, Harvard or Yale, and only one justice, Justice Kennedy, having spent most of his legal career outside of the Boston to Washington corridor. Do you think this is a problem for the court, or is it just? 
You know, that's a very difficult question. And uh, it sort of as a general matter, I, I really like the notion that there would be a little more diversity within the court itself, because I do think that, that different points of view do have a bearing. I mean, after all, I'm a member of the religious minority. There are no more wasps on the court, as you know. <laughs> no Protestants. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I do think that the court would benefit from uh, broader geographic diversity and different experiences. Other than now, I think they're all former judges, except for Elena Kagan, who was almost a judge and, and uh, uh, was, of course, a solicitor general to sit. But on the other hand, I do think the recent appointments have been eminently well qualified, and that, that includes not only the appointments that uh, Justice uh, uh, that President Obama has made, but also the, the, the two most recent appointments by uh, uh, President Bush. So that I, I, I have the mixed feelings that I do think they've got an, an eminently well qualified group of justices now, but I also think we do miss something when you have when we don't have uh, a little more variety of experience than just all former judges. There's a lot of concern expressed now by uh, commentators about uh, partisanship and conflicts of interest on the uh, courts. Some of this focuses on the political activities, for example, of Justice Thomas's wife and asks whether he should recuse himself. Some of it uh, focuses on the attendance of justices at a conference sponsored by people with uh, strong political interests. Uh, do you think that criticism is justified? I'm not sure I understood the second one. I understand the question about Justice Thomas, and I, I, I would say that uh, I, I, have, I don't think there's any possibility that any of the activities of, uh, of Mrs. Thomas have had any impact whatsoever on his analysis of the cases. I think he is, is a person who makes up his own mind. He has a very definite set of views that are really quite consistent over the years. And so I, uh, I would not expect him to feel, feel it necessary to, to disqualify himself. But I, I'm not sure I caught the I, second Justice, part. I think you've probably answered the second half, too, which is that uh, there's been some criticism of Justices Thomas and Scalia in particular for attending, for example, conferences sponsored by the Koch brothers who are uh, major donors to conservative causes, and, and these are... Well, you know, that, that particular criticism has worked the other way, too, mm -hmm. because there are some of us. Uh, I, I led a, a discussion group at the Aspen Institute for more than one year, and, and Harry Blackman went out there several times, and people might have thought that, that we were participating in activities that might influence our, our work. I, I think you can have confidence that the the justices have enough independence in assessing what goes on in conferences of that kind that it really wouldn't have any significant impact on their work. The, the divisions on the court right now seem to have become more rigid uh, than they were when you joined it. It's easier, it seems, for newspaper reporters and others to talk about a liberal and conservative block. Do you, do you agree that it's changed that way? And, and if so, what has happened? Well, there do seem to be more cases in which the same lineup re reoccurs. But it's also, you have to remember, there are also cases in which those lineups are fragmented in different ways. For example, in cases involving the Confrontation Clause, Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy are opposite sides of that issue. And there are other issues involving uh, sentencing and criminal, uh, and the construction of the statute involving uh, 
uh, the, the, the heavier penalty if you're a former uh, violent, uh, perpetrated a former violent crime. I can't state the provision of the statute there. There's some very sharp division within the court that doesn't follow that particular uh, breakdown that is, is uh, uh, you're referring to. It's certainly, that's true in the criminal procedure area and uh, uh, free speech area sometimes, right. uh, too, though not in campaign uh, financed. Did you think the work style of the court uh, changed much, or was the level of civility within the court about the, the same over your time? Well, the, the level of civility is, is, is genuinely very, it's a very nice place to work, because I, <laughs> Despite the fact that uh, opinions frequently contain very strong language because the author of the opinion feels very strongly about a particular issue, there's never been a time when I was there when I didn't feel that I could talk to a person who took the other side of an issue, either about the merits or about whether or not a particular sentence might have gone a little farther than was appropriate in, the, in that. And I think that the that the, all of the members of the court respect one another and, and actually like one another as, as they were. And I don't think that was true at the time when I was a law clerk. Uh, in fact, some of you may have read the book The Scorpions, which come out, came out recently, which I think is an accurate portrayal of some of the, the rather strong disagreements among members of the court when Justice Frankfurter and Justice Douglas, for example, very strongly disagreed with one another, and I think it may have uh, affected some of their, their personal views. In fact, I can remember when I was practicing law in Chicago, Thurgood Marshall was our circuit justice for a brief period of time, and I remember someone asking him a question about uh, the, court, the re relationship among the justices, and he said, you know, well, we're really all good friends, we get along fine, and so forth. And I remember thinking to myself, based on my impression as a law clerk, well, that's sort of the party line there, but, but I, I wonder if it's true. And I wondered until I actually got to the court, and I found out it was true, that they really do get along very well, and, and on a personal level, it was, it's a very, very uh, uh, fine place uh, to work. And that was true during my entire tenure. So I think there's been a change o over the years, but there is, I think they really are genuinely good friends now. Nowadays, the justices are perfectly civil to one another, and sometimes the clerks end up getting into uh, <laughs> fracases. I'm so sorry. Every, the justices now are all perfectly civil no. to one another, but every once in a while, in some terms, their clerks end up getting oh. into uh, that was true some years ago. Uh, I don't remember the term, but uh, there's a, the, a Blackman clerk wrote a book about called Closed Chambers or something like that. Yeah, it was that. the term before mine, at least to say. But the, uh, and October 88. <laughs> that term, apparently there was really disagreement among the different, the, 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 clerks, the, the clerks for the different chambers sort of separated into friends and enemies, you might say. And, but I don't think the justices were aware of it. And I think they learned of it, maybe it was a your, your year, Chris, and, but after that, they made a, an effort to, be, to make sure that didn't happen again. And I think that, that now the, the relationship among the clerks is just as cordial as it is um, among the justices, sometimes even more so. I think Justice Brennan discovered it after one particular incident where uh, his clerk and one of Scalia's clerks got into a fight. Uh, 
Brennan clerk got dumped into one of the fountains in the Supreme Court, went back to the <laughs> Brennan chambers, wrapped himself in a flag that had been sent to Justice Brennan because of the flag-burning case, and fell asleep. And <laughs> the story that was needed to explain that afterwards may have tipped him off. To... Let me, I've monopolized uh, uh, you in this conversation so far. I want to ask you one last question, and then I know we have some floating microphones out there, and uh, we can go to questions from the uh, crowd. You, you, you've obviously, and, and this really comes through in the book, uh, not only witnessed but participated in an enormous amount of constitutional history. As you look at our country today, are, are you optimistic about the future of the court and the Constitution? Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm reassured. I, I will now open it up, and I know we have fo <laughs> folks out there with uh, microphones, and I'll try very hard. So I, I, I see a hand here, and we'll start there, and then I'm going to ask for an undergraduate uh, student to uh, ask the second question. But we have a... Yes. Uh, um, first, I'd like to say thank you for the work you did on the Supreme Court, and uh, I appreciate your, your efforts there. Uh, my question involves personal conflict of interest. Uh, you briefly mentioned it in your talk, but um, I understand that there are no formal guidelines for determining personal conflict of interest, and I was wondering if that is true, and if so, uh, is that a flaw in your opinion, and also what did you use for your own guidelines? Well, it, 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 yes and no. There are statutes and rules that apply to the federal judiciary generally, which I think literally do not apply to the members of the Supreme Court. Is that right, Chris? But I think the court has, as a matter of policy, agreed that they will abide by the outstanding standing rules. Uh, my own first exposure to that particular problem was in a conversation with uh, John Hastings at the Seventh Circuit. I mentioned him in the book. Uh, a, a judge who had been the chief judge of the Court of Appeals before I, I joined, who remained for a few more years serving as, as a senior judge. And I remember him saying to me, if you think there's a question of whether you've got a conflict or not, that's a sufficient reason for disqualifying yourself. And that's the rule that I always follow. And I think perhaps m most members of the court are pretty, pretty careful in that way. There are, however, uh, there is, however, a difference between disqualification in the Supreme Court and disqualification on the Court of Appeals. On the Court of Appeals, you can be replaced by another, another judge very easily. So it's a, you have a, a, a more, it's easier to disqualify yourself than you normally do. On the Supreme Court, there's a cost involved that uh, many people think is important that should be taken into account. For whenever a Supreme Court justice disqualifies himself or herself, there's a, there, that remain there eight justices on the case, which creates the possibility of an even split, four to four, which is always undesirable because of all the work that goes into a case all, all the time. And so there is an argument for in favor of sitting that sometimes trumps the rather automatic rule of disqualification. So again, it's, in some cases, it's, it's a little more difficult than, than others. 
So let me now ask for a question from a Princeton undergraduate, uh, and I see some here in the uh, front row. I, I will take the opportunity as the microphone approaches to remind folks that uh, questions are different from speeches. They end with question marks. The first uh, question there uh, was a good example, and they're usually shorter than a speech, too. Uh, this is a question for both of you, because you've both had prolific careers in law. Um, so first of all, what first inspired you to go into law, and when did you know that that was what you wanted to spend your career doing? What inspired me to go into law? Well, actually, I had, when I was in college, I was going to be an English teacher. That was my, my uh, intended uh, career. But uh, two things made me change my, my, my plans uh, during my period of service during the Navy. Uh, one was that I got a letter from my older brother Jim, who was five years older than I was, explaining to me all the, the, the joys of legal work, the fact that it gave him the opportunity to help others who re really needed help in a way that you didn't really understand unless you'd gone through it. And he found all sorts of non-monetary rewards from the ability to give assistance to people who really needed assistance. And I still remember the letter very, very vividly because it really sparked the interest in, in going to law school. And the second thing that, uh, of decisive importance for me was that uh, the federal uh, the Congress passed the GI Bill of Rights, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> provided the financial ability to go to law school after, after the war. And that, I think, affected a large number of, uh, of veterans of World War II. It was a marvelous piece, piece of legislation. And then the other, uh, other factor that, uh, that I also thought that was part of the challenge is that there's, there's sort of a competitive aspect to, to, to the legal education that I don't think is there in some other, other professions. And, and the challenge was something that interested me. I will say on my behalf that I was a physics major here when, as a sophomore, I took a course called uh, Constitutional Interpretation that uh, Robbie George now teaches but was then taught by a tremendous professor here named uh, Walter Murphy. And as I sat through that course, I found myself thinking if I could spend my life uh, thinking about and working with the Constitution, that's what I want to do. And I, I also found myself thinking, but everybody in the room must feel exactly the same way. And, when the final exam ended and some students were outside shrieking, thank goodness it's over, I thought maybe I had a chance to... <laughs> I, I, when I asked for students, there were a couple of other hands here, and there's a young woman in the middle row there. Uh, um, hi, thank you again for your service. Um, you're my favorite justice. <laughs> People can't see, but... <laughs> yes. She is wearing an yes. I Heart JPS shirt. And yeah. <laughs> yes, I made it in law school, and you're my favorite so much so that my boyfriend is very threatened by you. <laughs> um, she she says you're her favorite so much that her boyfriend <laughs> feels very threatened. <laughs> um, but in any case, my question for you um, is regarding one of the final opinions, um, dissent on the Lily Ledbetter case, and I was curious as to what your thoughts were that the fact that um, President Obama's first piece of legislation was the Lilly uh, Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. I'm sorry, I'm, help me on this. So this is the Lilly Ledbetter, the uh, Title VII oh, uh, the, the, case about employment discrimination, uh, which then was, you dissented and your dissent was vindicated by uh, statute. 
That's correct. That, 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 that was a, a one, one case in which Congress was able to straighten. But really, um, I think Justice Ginsburg wrote the principal dissent in the case. And it, it was a very persuasive dissent. Uh, but uh, that is an example of, a, of, of a, an issue that Congress can create. And over the years, there have been a fair number. The Civil Rights Act, it was in 1997, yes. corrected seven or eight of, of uh, the course decisions. I think six out of the seven I dissented in. <laughs> the, so the dissenters can talk to future justices, and they can also sometimes talk to Congress and, and produce a change uh, that way. Well, sometimes the Congress reads the dissenting opinions, I guess that's right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and sometimes they listen to the uh, uh, oral statements, and I think uh, one very particularly persuasive oral statement was made by Justice Scalia in his case involving the independent counsel statute. And I think, I, I thought he was wrong on his constitutional analysis, but I think he did make a statement that met, convinced Congress that they should take a second look at the, at the statute. Just see if we, if we have other hands. Uh, uh, we have a microphone in the balcony, so I, I see um, uh, a young man in a dark blue shirt here. Hello. Uh, if you could personally rewrite the Constitution, <laughs> what, what parts, if any, would you change? What parts would I change? Uh, well, I think I'd just delete the 11th Amendment. <laughs> the, the 11th Amendment is uh, the sovereign immunity uh, amendment, or it provides the textual basis for uh, the claimed norm of sovereign immunity that uh, other justices have found there. I should perhaps have more accurately said, I've, I've written a couple of times that there are really two 11th Amendments. One of is the text of the 11th Amendment itself, and the second is the court's uh, additions to the, to, to the text, and I would delete the additions. I think it would be fair to say that the court contradicts in some ways what's in the uh, text of the 11th Amendment. You see, we have, I see, uh, now I'm looking right into the bright lights, but I see a hand right here. If, uh, if we can get a microphone over there. Grateful to our runners who are literally running at the moment. Uh, just a little further along, there we go. Hi, um, I actually want to reiterate what the um, person a couple before me said. You're absolutely my favorite justice, and I love your bow ties. <laughs> You're, you are absolutely her favorite justice as well, and she also loves your bow ties. <laughs> Think of you. <laughs> I, I will say this particular one was a gift from one of his clerks, Troy McKenzie, a Princeton graduate who's with us, who presented the justice with it about 10 minutes before the lecture. Wow. And he quickly tied it. Well, that's, that's my favorite that I've seen you wearing, so I approve. Um, but I was wondering, obviously you've had a very extensive career um, as a Supreme Court Justice, and my question is whether now, after your many years in service, whether there's any of your early decisions or opinions that at this point you feel your opinion has changed. Uh, looking back on your career, are, are there any of your uh, opinions or decisions that in retrospect uh, you would have written uh, differently or that your view has changed? I'm looking up at the questioner to make sure I got that right. She says yes. Well, there's one that uh, I definitely would have voted the other way. Uh, and again, I, th I think I do mention this in the book. In the uh, uh, 
a case involving the constitutionality of the Texas capital punishment statute. I had a law clerk named George Rutherglen, who now teaches at the University of Virginia Law School, and who urged me very strongly at the time that that statute should not be upheld. And I, I was persuaded by my uh, colleagues, Potter Stewart and uh, uh, Lewis Powell, to go along with the uh, decision to, up, to uphold that statute. And I got it wrong in that case. I know there's another questioner down here in the black shirt. Um, my question is in viewing uh, your two different major opinions on the First Amendment, so uh, the in favor of, school de of student demonstrations and then in the, the flag burning, can you kind of talk a little bit about uh, your, your different opinions on the, uh, the First Amendment and the ability to uh, assemble and speech? particularly the flag case? I, I think the question is about the relationship between, is it Morse, the, the recent school uh, demonstration case where a student held up the bong hits for Jesus uh, sign oh. and uh, comparing that to the flag burning case and what was at stake there? And it, well, in the, in the um, uh, bong Whatever the bong for G, I can't remember the exact. <laughs> this was this was a student where I, I don't know whether you agree. I, th there was a uh, uh, there was a parade with I think a presidential campaign that was getting coverage right. or something, and so the student I think wrote something that made virtually no sense, but uh, perhaps with the view that by combining religion and bong hits uh, that he would get on television, and he right. was then yeah. penalized. And I think you wrote on behalf of the, the students' free well, speech yeah, rights. I, I thought that the, the, uh, the, the discipline in that case was based on disagreement with the message that uh, he intended. He, if you construed the message the way the school board construed it, it was their disagreement with their understanding of the message, which really was, was pretty ambiguous. It was a case in which it seemed to me, and they treated it as though uh, it had taken place on the school premises where, in fact, it was across the street in a public area. And the notion that this would have reflected on the school seemed to be an unpersuasive uh, basis for the discipline because it was seen to me it was, it was an, an ambiguous, colorful display that a teenager could uh, display without being subject to sanctions. And it's quite different, I think, from the uh, uh, flag cases, and there are two of them, and I might say that probably the better of the two dissents that I wrote is the second one, because uh, one Chris Eisgruber had a hand in the drafting of, of that dissent, and I commend you to, to the second opinion. But there's a, there's a vast difference between what you should do when the issue first arises, which I thought quite clearly uh, and, and the issue of what you might do now. That's clearly a case in which stare decisis should apply because they have a settled, settled rule. And the fact that I disagreed with the original decision would not be a sufficient basis for overturning the decision. That's, that's a clear example, I think, of one that the, if the rule is established, it, it should stay. And incidentally, one of the reasons that I kind of amused when I'm asked about that particular question is that one of the things that was accomplished by uh, constitutionalizing the right to burn flags is that nobody burns flags anymore. 
<laughs> Which you predicted, I think, in I, one of your opinions. I, I don't remember the first, whether the first, I, I did that, but I did disagree, and I still disagree with the rationale in Justice Brennan's opinion, because there are actually two ways, there are two messages that were being conveyed by the a demonstrator in the, in the taxi case. One was his opposition to the Reagan administration and his policies, and that was not the basis for saying he had the right to burn the flag, but the second message that he was conveying was he didn't like the American flag. And of course, any time one engages in symbolic speech by some kind of conduct, he is expressing disagreement with the rule that prohibits that conduct. So that if you applied the logic of the opinion to its logical extreme, I think it would make all expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment, which I think is, is a in, in, incorrect reasoning. I think there was another question down here in the front row. That's it. Uh, thank you for your service, Justice Stevens, first and foremost. Um, my question is, in light of uh, certain decisions like Bush v. Gore and the Citizens United decision last year, a lot of critics of the court, and I, I say critics when it comes to the institutionalization of the court, uh, in terms of justices serving for life. They get to serve for their entire life as long as they'd like. Do you believe that justices on the Supreme Court should have term limits? That's the first question. And secondly, do you the believe The answer is easy. No. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, and, and secondly, do you believe the Supreme Court should try to make aims to become more transparent? Uh, perhaps the, uh, certain people have uh, talked about having uh, a video camera and televising Supreme Court uh, cases so that the American people can get more in touch with the Supreme Court. Well, there, there, are, t there are two parts to the question, as I understand it, is... Uh, whether the partisan aims or uh, what role they play. I don't really think that any members of the majority think of their work as partisan work. It, it may, may in fact be true that one political party tends to agree with certain category decisions and not others, but I'm sure they don't feel that they're, they're partisans or, and I really don't think they should be because there are enough aspects of of the justices who are frequently identified as the most five most conservative really disagree with each with other on other sets of cases. I think we, we mentioned uh, mentioned that early. And on the question of whether uh, the court's proceedings should be televised, that's really a very difficult question. I think I, th I think you should not expect it to be done in the near future because I think the members of the court are very much opposed to it. And one reason, the, 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 the reason favoring televising is that I think the public generally would have a better understanding of the working of the court and really have more respect for the, the, the way they handle the, the arguments in the process because when you see them you realize they have thought about the case a great deal and have come up with questions and are, are, are to be admired for the, their preparation. I think that would come through if you televised. But I think the, the, what they're afraid of is that whenever you introduce television into an area that it hasn't been before, sometimes it has unanticipated consequences. The example that I often think about is you go to a, a professional football game and for some reason the players are just standing around for a minute or two and you wonder, what's going on? Well, there's a television commercial and that takes precedence of over going ahead with the game. And in the case of the Supreme Court arguments, Basically, it's a very important part of the deliberative process, 
and it's working on the whole quite well, at least the, the members of the court think it is, and I think there, there's a concern that if you introduce television, it might have an impact that you don't anticipate on the behavior of lawyers and the behavior of some members of the court. So there's that concern. The a response to that is that it's been tried in a number of state courts, worked out very well, has not caused that problem. But the Supreme Court is a more of a high visibility forum than some of the state courts, and so there's, there's a greater danger there than I think in other courts. So the question is, is not an easy one, and, and I, but I do think that, that the members of the court are, are, on the whole are very much opposed to it. They, they'd rather not, don't fix what ain't broken. Let me just check. I see a hand here in the uh, kind of middle row. Uh, as you've seen a lot of politicians come and go in the past 35 years, what advice or warning would you give to um, young people who want to become politicians in the future? So as you've seen politicians come and go over the uh, past few decades, what advice would you give to uh, young people who are thinking about becoming politicians? Well, not being a politician myself, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer the question. But I would, I would hold out, frankly, I thought about him recently, the, the career of uh, Senator Percy uh, of Illinois, who was, uh, I think, uh, put, put uh, the public good at, at the top of the, all, the, all the problems he atta attached. And uh, uh, I, I guess it's, it's, it's like so many other careers, to do the best you can and and be true to yourself when you're, when you're working on it and don't feel that because there's a lot of pressure going one way or another that you let yourself be swayed too much by things you really don't agree with. Senator Percy was a Republican senator from uh, Illinois who was also known for being able to work very effectively uh, across the aisle with the Democratic uh, Party and there aren't many of those uh, now in our Politics. Let me look up again, if I can, into the lights here. Now I've got, okay, so there's a hand here. Actually, that's my uh, colleague, Martin Flaherty. So let's say Marty and I, for many years, had season tickets together at Yankee Stadium because the Justice and I uh, share the lifelong burden, I would say, of being Cubs fans, and it's just a little too hard for me to get all the way to Wrigley. Well, thank you, uh, Chris, and thank you, Justice. In fact, along those lines, I'm tempted to ask you whether Babe Ruth actually called his shot at Wrigley Field because I knew you were in the stands for that game. But the question I will ask you is to weigh in on the debate of the justices using foreign legal materials from other countries and international law and in interpreting the Constitution. Well, the, the two questions. First, yes, he did call his shot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that is the one event in my life which will preserve my, me for posterity. <laughs> as to the second question, I really think that's a, quite an easy question. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was always my feeling that I, wherever you could find uh, wisdom on a particular issue, you should, you should not hesitate to use it. Uh, I read law reviews, I look at all sorts of sources, and just as members of the Supreme Court of Illinois might look to foreign law, the, what they say over in Indiana, it seems to me that's perfectly okay. <laughs> and and if the Supreme Court, if you look to see what the Supreme Court of Australia has done with a particular issue, which I did in one case involving a computation of 
damages that I've worked on for a long time. The, the, of course, the, the, the members of the court should not have any hesitation whatsoever in seeking guidance wherever it can be found to, in order to help uh, you know, answer questions. And, and there's a wonderful footnote that uh, uh, Justice White wrote in an opinion that uh, when he responded to criticism of the use of legislative history, he quotes Justice Marshall, who in essence says you seek guidance wherever you think it will be helpful to you. Let me see if there's another question. I see a young man in a, a red polo shirt here in the middle, and I'm sorry I've done this to our runner up there uh, uh, again. I think this will probably be our last question. I'd like to also thank you for your service to the country and also for coming to speak to us. They say that uh, Congress is the purse and the executive branch is the sword and that there really is no metaphor for the enforcement mechanism of the court. Do you think it's a problem that the Supreme Court really has no method to enforce the decisions that it makes? And if so, what would you suggest as a solution to that? So is it a problem that the court has no power of its own to enforce its decisions? And if so, is there a solution we should be looking at to that? Well, it, it, it's true that the court has to rely on the executive branch to enforce the particular decisions. But I don't think that's ever been a problem except for the one example of President Jackson suggested Justice Marshall has issued his opinion, let, it, let him enforce it. But I think that there is such respect for the court as an institution that there really has been a, a general assumption in other branches of the, of the government that their, their opinions will be honored and respected. And uh, uh, I think President, even President Nixon respected the the case uh, ruling against his his position. I think that uh, uh, the I think the President Bush was exactly the same with regard to the rulings involving the Guantanamo that we talked about earlier. It, it, it's one of those things that, I, that that it is part of our our culture that uh, the court has been respected because of the work it's done over the years, and, and I, I think it will continue to be that way. Justice Stevens, I, I want to say that I, I would put myself firmly in the camp along with uh, those people who say that you are their favorite uh, justice. You are certainly my favorite uh, justice. And I think if we were selling those T-shirts out in the hallways right now with iHeartJPS, we would sell a bundle of them. Thank you so much for coming and spending your time with us.